Hello, and welcome to DigFinVox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoyed this program, please like it, subscribe, share it. My guest today is Ariel Starkman, co-founder of Undivided Ventures, a VC firm that invests in prop tech. I spoke with Ariel about what that means. Prop tech can range from ESG to AI, all the way to tokenization. And of course, I asked her where she sees valuations and property markets headed. Ariel Starkman, welcome to DigFinVox. Thank you, James. Nice to be here. So why don't we start with introducing yourself. Uh, you are a longstanding investor in real estate. Um, we're going to talk about real estate, prop tech, ESG, and maybe some of the the, the, the next wave of, of fintech in, in your sector. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your new venture fund, Undivided. Sure, thank you. So excited to be here. Um, as Jay mentioned, I, I'm a managing partner and a co-founder of um, a new venture fund called Undivided Ventures. Undivided Ventures is based in Hong Kong, and we're focused specifically on prop tech and construction tech with a sustainability angle, meaning that we look at technology that helps real estate to decarbonize, helps real estate to be more sustainable, more efficient, on many various aspects, which I will touch upon later. In addition, I'm also a founder of Worker Capital. Worker Capital now is a single family office uh, run by myself or our family. Um, I primarily invest in real estate and actually started investing in technology through my family office. And this is how um, the next iteration became Divided Ventures. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of prop tech. Um, not something I would ever claim to know anything about, um, but it's sort of adjacent to the fintech space. So, you know, maybe just give us a quick rundown on, on what are the various stripes or flavors in, in prop tech and, uh, and where is that going? Sure. So prop tech is a bit of a big concept right because real estate is such a large industry is one of the largest industries globally it dominates everything we do um where we go for meetings where we are in our homes or in the office um hence technology associated with real estate can really be anything for me when i started investing as an individual investor for me prop tech was really serving a purpose of helping real estate to be more efficient whether it's in managing operations, whether it's in making decisions, data mining, etc. So for me, PropTech is anything that you can actually sell into the real estate industry, meaning it's primarily B2B businesses, um, technology, which is sellable into the real estate, and of course, construction, uh, construction industry. Um, I think that, again, in the last years, and PropTech is a relatively new concept, kind of like fintech. Um, if I draw a bit of a parallel where PropTech and fintech, in my opinion, merge, right? I mean, you have platforms for or trying to have platforms in various parts of the world um, for tokenization of assets. This is something where uh, PropTech and fintech kind of go hand in hand. Um, I think a lot of the products that we see on the fintech side is really about making decisions as fast as possible, having the edge with information and data mining. Well, we have a lot of data when it comes to real estate, when it comes to running 
a building, when it comes to running a portfolio, when it comes to acquiring a new asset or disposing of an asset. Hence, um, there are already quite a few solutions that help you do it without sort of the traditional Excel spreadsheet or pen and paper, literally, but um, really using the most cutting edge technology. You deal a lot with family offices. You you operate your own family office, but you also then, uh, I guess, create these investment structures for other family offices to come in. Uh, so, it, it, you know, what's exciting right now? I mean, look, a um, few points on that. I mean, first, I think that the family offices here in particular kind of went through an evolution. If um, sort of 10, eight years ago, family offices didn't necessarily want to invest in um, real estate private equity funds, even in um, locations where they don't have footprint or connections, they view real estate as something they want to hold um, directly, uh, maybe as part of a club, but definitely be in a deal rather than in a fund. I think that especially with COVID, this really changed 180 degrees. I mean, real estate uh, funds right now having much better success and hit rates with family offices. I think that family offices here understand that, well, they cannot be everywhere. Um, they need local partners everywhere and it's just too difficult. I think that, again, about eight, even six years ago, US was on the heart and mind of many family offices in terms of direct investments. And now very few would go that route unless it's going through a private equity fund for a variety of reasons, whether it's geopolitics, tax structuring, just ease of operation, um, right? But I also see that if you look at Asia in general, a lot of the family offices from Hong Kong are looking to diversify from Hong Kong. They're not selling the assets here, but yet they're definitely looking outside, whether it's just Asia. I mean, Japan has always been very popular with both institutional investors and family offices and will continue to do so with still all things considered low interest rates and ease of obtaining financing and also an opportunity. I mean, a lot of family offices see that it's a stable market. Um, family offices have been looking at Singapore, but not in the last two years because the prices have been so high that everybody is waiting for that next correction. Yeah, um, a little bit of a dip there. And I think lastly, UK and London, I feel like I've been in Asia for 15 years and I've seen it for the last 15 years, there is always appetite for UK. Good times or bad times, um, there are family offices who've been operating in UK, in London and outside of London for years. And right now they see an opportunity both currency-wise, but also just capital values-wise. And what about the reverse? I don't know to what extent you look at uh, flows from outside of Asia coming in. What's the demand for that like? I mean, look, Again, kind of several several points to make here. I mean, while um, the institutional investors are all still investing in Asia, and in fact, some of the bigger guys already raised significant funds just in the last 24 months, which were quite challenging, um, raised funds for Asia. But then we need to look at where they invest in. Majority of them are not investing in China, even though you could argue there are a lot of opportunities now and a lot of semi-distressed opportunities. They're investing anywhere but China, really. I mean, as I mentioned, Japan has been always a big magnet for institutional capital, um, but also looking at Southeast Asia. Whether it's, again, Singapore, although now it's quite expensive, um, 
Vietnam, Indonesia, um, Thailand, even, and then of course, India. Um, some institutions are looking at Australia. Now on the family office side, I mean, if before I've seen, definitely before COVID, before 2019, there were quite a few um, European family offices, which already established shop here um, to invest and diversify in Asia. I have to say um, quite a few of them left back to their home countries due, again during COVID. But also, I don't think that family offices right now see Asia in particular, family offices outside of Asia as a market that they want to go full on. Okay. And is that because of the interest rate environment has changed their calculation around risk premia or is it, or is it around geopolitics or does they, um, or, or, or something else? I think it's actually both. Mm-hmm. I mean, the last, I would say 18 months were very volatile, right? So I think that if you have a family office from Switzerland or France or UK looking to diversify, you will be just sitting very tight and figuring out what's happening in the world. Um, second is geopolitics. Some, I mean, again, you and I have been here for a long time. We've been for the last four years. Um, Hong Kong has not been painted in the best way in the media. So I think that, again, if you're sort of far away from this market, you might not want to come here. However, again, I would draw a parallel. Singapore does enjoy that influx of family offices from around the world, really. Um, seeking to diversify, um, seeking to look for opportunities in Asia. And it's specifically, I think, more for Hong Kong, which needs to sort out how they try to attract family offices, not just from Asia, but globally, to set a base here. What's Let's talk about ESG for a minute. I want to switch gears. Um, ESG is a big, uh, you know, it, it's now a mega trend. Uh, it's, it's here to stay, whatever the branding or the politics around that. Um, uh, and in in real estate, of course, there's uh, a lot of effort to try to, I guess, create buildings in a more efficient way, or retrofit buildings, or you know, just find ways to reduce the carbon, whether it's in the inputs or the buildings themselves, or the energy outputs that they're putting with air conditioning and so on. Talk us a little bit about as an investor, um, is this a viable way to allocate assets? Is is the ASG story something that you can make money off of? I mean, look, this is, of course, very dear to my heart because this is um, the core strategy of um, our VC fund. And I'll give you a bit of a backstory. I mean, when my partner, Alexander Bent, um, had this idea for Undivided, I mean, he comes from real estate background. He had a real estate company here doing both retrofits, um, ground ups, acquisition of, uh, of real estate. And he came to this challenge himself that for retrofits or for anything else, his institutional partners were demanding specific technologies or specific solutions for especially sustainability. And this is how we started talking and thinking how, you know, we can make it as a whole separate business and investing in those technologies because there is definitely a demand, as you mentioned, is here to stay. I mean, regulation, first of all, I'll, I'll tackle it from several aspects. First of all, regulation everywhere is changing, whether we like it or not, whatever your politics are or not. Um, Hong Kong has been a bit slow to adapt regulation, but it's all coming and it's happening in terms of what do you need to do with your building to get it to carbon neutrality, to get it to a certain sustainability level. And I will mainly focus on the E in ESG, which is the environmental. I think that right now where we see a big opportunity is that 
if before ESG or the E part was considered just sort of a red line that it's just an expense and it's nuisance. Now you must have those ESG policies, but also the technologies and the solutions that we see actually don't need to be expensive. On the other hand, they need to be accretive to the bottom line of a real estate owner, operator, or investor. So turning so that that we, red line, turning that that cost into something that can actually add add to the, uh, I guess, improve the the bottom line on the on the PL. Absolutely, absolutely, because it's all, especially now in this day and age. I mean, margins are being squeezed both from from both sides. On the income side, I mean, rents have been falling. If you look at commercial, if you look just at office, uh, for example. On the other hand, your margins are increasing because electricity costs is increasing, your operational costs are increasing. So you need to figure out how to scrape those dollars and cents back into your bottom line. And what I see is that a lot of the technologies, and again, one of our guidelines in Undivided is that technologies we look at have to be accretive to the bottom line of the end user, which are the developer, investor, um, owner. Um, those technologies can help you with efficiency whether it's energy efficiency, whether it's um, better facility management, whether it's insulation, which is big, I mean, cooling and heating, of course, is a very big theme right now. And it all comes down to efficiency and cost, while you also doing something pretty significant in terms of your sustainability goals, working on your um, operational carbon, and again, beyond the carbon capture. So is there gonna be, it, as an investor, um, how do you tackle these? What are the best ways to get exposed to property, whether it's in Hong Kong, mainland China, the rest of the region? Is it through these these kind of uh, obscure, I mean, to me, uh, obscure, uh, very, uh, it, you know, roll up the sleeves kind of technology businesses that are catered to the real estate? Is it the buildings themselves? Is it um, is it rentals? Is it commercial? You know, like, what is the, the way that, this is changing how to find the best investment opportunities. I mean, look, I think that, you know, the asset class that we're in is, is, is an auxiliary to real estate. I mean, if you are a real estate investor, you're not going to suddenly stop being a real estate investor and right. switch into tech. Right. Um, but it's sort of both. I think that um, the current trends in sustainability, in technology, in AI, basically forces the real estate industry. If you're a real estate owner, you need, to understand what's happening on the technology side and how technology can be your friend rather than a foe. I mean, I don't like the word disruption of real estate because no one is really disrupting real estate. I mean, we still need our buildings yeah. for doing whatever we're doing. However, how do we manage them better? How do we manage our portfolios better? Again, we talked about FinTech before. How do I uh, manage my portfolio in the sense that I mine all the data much smarter uh, much faster so I can know where are my challenges and opportunities in my portfolio and where I can make my next acquisition. I think that again, I'm very passionate about data and AI. I think that again, this can only be accretive to our industry. Um, so back to your previous question, I haven't, I haven't backtracked, is that um, I think it's both. I think that, you know, if you're a real estate investor, you will continue to look for and seek those opportunities. And I think that in Asia Pacific, there will be opportunities. I mean, look, China is challenging, but um, if you have capital that can go and acquire in China, there are some very interesting opportunities right now. Again, you need to have a 
longer term horizon. Again, we need to look beyond the geopolitics, although it's inevitable that you'll think that, but again, it's all about where is your capital coming from and what is your investment horizon? Yeah. But I think that investing in technology kind of coincide with it is can be just accretive, just accretive and not dilutive um, to that portfolio composition. I want to go back to fintech and wrap up there because that's obviously Digfin's uh, bread and butter. Um, there's there's two areas where things have been happening, I guess, in this space. Uh, one has already been taking place for some time, and the other is is still, I guess, around the corner. The first one is we've seen these platforms uh, that are uh, designed to en enable let's say wealthy family level people to directly invest into a variety of different um, private capital funds, uh, some of which would be real estate or they might also be private equity or, or, or others. Um, and I'm curious to see if, if this is bringing in, because there's so much family wealth in, in Asia, if you're seeing you know, a real growth or real demand for families and family offices to be able to get that kind of access to private capital structures using these fintech platforms that are able to kind of basically you know cut the size the minimum size and then they then they present a an omnibus institutional level clientele to you know the kkrs and the carlisles of the world are, is, is this uh, is this meaningful to to the family offices that, that you deal with I think that in Asia, we're a little bit behind the curve on this. I think that, again, from my experience, Asian family offices, they like the direct approach. They like to know who they're dealing with, who is the counterpart, who is next to them in that capital stock. And it, again, it's across asset classes. I think that, again, as we're using more AI and more of those tools, tokenization, for example, I think there is definitely an opportunity to educate those family offices on what else is possible, because I think that post last year, everybody is still sort of licking their wounds, so to speak, um, and trying to figure out well, where is that next big thing. And if there is an asset class, sort of like a newer asset class, if you will, where you can get into deals, but without taking all the risk or all that capital that re required to buy a building, but have a fraction of the project, I think that again, with if everything sort of falls in place right, there is a big opportunity. Okay. It just took a while. I mean, you and I talked about it. It's been around for some time, but Asian private capital has not been accessing those opportunities or looking at this as a viable investment strategy. Um, but I think things are changing and things will be continue changing rather quickly. Okay, great. And then the future one, of course, is tokenization, which we we hinted at earlier. Um, the tokenization effort has for a number of years been, I think a lot of people started with real estate, um, but it, and I, I've interviewed here a few people who specialize in, in that area, um, but it hasn't really taken off. There's been proofs of concepts, there's been small things. You, you deal with um, all aspects of this sector. You, you deal with the people that own these assets and who, as well as those that want to invest in them. Um, what do you see as the the the, the hangups or the the barriers uh, to tokenizing these things? Um, is it in the interest of the the you know the developers or the, or the big families that own this stuff to to participate in this sort of market? Uh, and uh, what might what might make that start to work better? Well, I think that on tokenization, 
you know, when you look at your alternatives, right? Well, from the developer point of view, yes, I can go through that process, which has been recently lengthy and still, I mean, the regulation in Hong Kong in particular um, is not yet there um, or not fully there. So they can go through this process and try to raise capital through that channel rather than just going to the bank, have like one meeting, especially if they have a relationship and get financing at better terms. I think that was the biggest challenge that your um, equivalent of what you can get in more traditional financing as a fin traditional financing vehicle is just much easier and cheaper. However, I think that if we get to a point where you can tokenize your asset um, with a much better terms, um, ease of execution, and, you know, again, diversify your capital a little bit. And I think this is where we will see much more tokenization. And I mean, look, I've seen in the last three, four years, a number of real estate players are trying and kind of pushing through with tokenization because they feel that they don't just look at one project and they look at the future. What is the future of finance, right? But again, I think that some of them did come to a realization that, well, I'll just call my banker. Yeah. in either um, you know local banks or international banks and get my financing uh, much quicker I, I would say one last point on that that because we're now in the rising interest rate environment and because suddenly um, there is a whole surge of credit funds and credit suddenly became really interesting for all the right reasons I think that this is an opportunity to create a vehicle or create a product that can be that alternative. And of course, on the other side from investors, I mean, there's just diversification. I mean, for me is getting into a real estate transaction that I would not be able to get myself because I just, it's, it's huge amounts of capital and I might not want to put all that money or don't have that money to put in one building, but buying a fraction makes sense and getting a return, of course. Do you think that we need to have, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to, be Mr. Mr. Gloomier, but would, would would this require some sort of crash or some sort of stress event for uh, for developers to to decide that they really wanted to do this because they need alternative sources of cha channel, or uh, or will there be a more organic, natural way to to just migrate into some of these new structures? I think actually the latter plus ease of execution, right? Because I think that if today we had this global real estate crash or Hong Kong real estate crash. I think that on the contrary, given like I know the nature of the business here, I think that the real estate owners here will be even more conservative and will right. not try new things if they haven't tried it before. However, if it, if it grows organically plus create a real sort of value chain, right? It will create and um, it makes sense for real estate owners to do it because it's cheaper and faster diversification of uh, the capital, et cetera, et cetera. And on the other hand, for investors, right? It's it's pretty, pretty interesting to get into those deals. I think that this is how it will grow. And it's all about ease of execution and of course cost, right? Because again, if I'm a real estate owner and it's much cheaper for me to get bank financing or financing from one of those credit funds, I wouldn't I bother going through that yeah. other more convoluted route. Okay, well, I can't let you get away uh, without uh, a, the obvious question that everybody always asks in this town. Uh, where Where is the property market in Hong Kong going? Uh, retail and commercial? Tough question. I have to say I've been since beginning of COVID 
I sort of, I wasn't here during SARS, right? So when COVID started, I thought, okay, this is my opportunity. I mean, I had a portfolio of assets um, in Hong Kong as well. Um, so I started looking and to my amazement, um, real estate prices and capital values didn't move that much. No. Uh, so there were no bargains, I mean, here and there, but it, it was really not a trend at all. I think that now what's happening is that everybody, the, the owners in Hong Kong, um, don't have any leverage or very little leverage, right? So for now, so they've been sitting on the sidelines and patiently waiting. I think that everybody is waiting for the deep opportunity, which may, may or may not be coming. I think that I would say on the rental side, we definitely see softening. I mean, whether it's office, whether it's retail, because of the tourists that are not coming back, because of um, conglomerates and companies which either reduced their footprint in Hong Kong or decided not to be in Hong Kong at all. Um, so I think that we'll see some, um, I wouldn't say like super tough, but tougher times ahead. And time will tell what's happening with interest rates. Again, interest rates are rising. So I would say I'm sort of sitting on the sidelines and patiently waiting for the dip to happen. It's sort of the softening has started, but I'm not sure to what extent it will progress. So yeah. I would say sit tight and keep an eye on the market. Yeah. Is it possible that there won't be a dip at all? Because eventually, uh, you know, those multinational corporates uh, will be replaced by Chinese, uh, more Chinese companies and, and people coming here. Well, I think, again, it remains to be seen. I mean, look, China opened the beginning of this year. Everybody thought, well, that's it, Hong Kong is back, tourism is back, tenants are back, and they're not back. I mean, they're back in a very small quantities, I would say. So I think that, again, that's another big challenge. China has their own many challenges until China figures out how they're getting out of this um, downturn everywhere. I think that Hong Kong will not benefit from all those companies coming here and must, uh, okay. right? But again, it's, it's a challenge and an opportunity because at some point it will happen. Yes. Okay, great. Well, um, let's end on then, since that's a little bit of a downer, I always like to end on a higher note. Singapore is going crazy. Uh, how long will the party last? Well, it's already, I mean, I'm a big Hong Kong believer. I think that Hong Kong is just better in many ways. As much as I love what they've done in Singapore, I think that you already see it. I mean, the latest articles just in the last couple of weeks that, you know, the office market hadn't experienced as much um, growth in both um, rental rates, but also occupancy. It's kind of reached a plateau. I think that, I mean, I personally know quite a few uh, family offices or just real estate professionals who moved to Singapore during last year and now are slowly making their way back to Hong Kong. Even as a family office, Singapore is becoming just way too expensive. So there is a point, I think, where you know we will have the reverse um i wouldn't look at buying the real estate assets in singapore right now i think that capital values just went way too high way too quickly and again um there is all, always a manufactured downturn there i mean real estate there is in predictable cycles so we just wait for the next cycle having said that it's a great opportunity um if you are a long-term investor and want to park some of that capital somewhere in Asia.
um, because Singapore will continue to do well in terms of attracting um, talent, attracting global family offices uh, with a PR machine. And I think that Hong Kong should do the same. Ariel, thanks so, so hopefully much. Hopefully it's an optimistic note. <laughs> yes, yeah, always, it's, it's good to end on an optimistic note. Okay, um, look, thank you so much for your time. It's been really fascinating uh, getting from my sort of fintech perch, uh, you know, getting a sense of what's going on in the property sector and the ways that these technologies are having similar impacts on, on adjacent industries. Yeah, thanks so much. Enjoyed talking to you and always love learning about fintech.